This is the Positive Psychology Podcast, episode 89. Welcome to the Positive Psychology Podcast, bringing your earbuds the science of the good life. And now your host, Kristen Trumpy. All right, so today we welcome Vanessa Zoltan, atheist chaplain at Harvard University and one of the creators of the wildly popular podcast, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Welcome, Vanessa. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So, um, do you remember the moment you decided to go to divinity school? Because I had no idea how Harvard had such a thing. Um, the moment... No, I do. Um, I was finishing my master's in nonprofit management and um, in order to, they sort of did an exit interview for that. And I had really struggled um, in business school. I thought I wanted to run a small nonprofit and, and I don't know, I just, it, it didn't suit me. I found the experience uh, fairly demoralizing in that it seemed as though we were having a lot of conversations about the logistics around how to run a good nonprofit. But to me, the world was broken and nonprofit organizations were also supposed to be thinking about the structural ways to address problems, not just how to use existing methods to address problems. Because if the existing methods worked, we would live in a different world. So it was just, it was a lot of frustration while in business school. And so during my exit interview, I was talking to the head of the department about my frustrations. And he said to me very sweetly, he was like, you know, Vanessa, these sound like very Jewish concerns, like the way that you're framing a desire to heal the world and, you know, that it's our responsibility to do so. And just a lot of the phrasing that I was using. And it just struck me. I rejected it at the time. I was 25, and I was like, well, that's silly. Um, but it was something that stuck with me. Um, and, you know, over the next five years, I went back to working for an education nonprofit and for several years after business school. And um, I, yeah, that I don't, it was just a bug in my ear. And then I started noticing that all of the people who I really admire, the thinkers who I really admire, gave a lot of thought to spirituality, you know, from Einstein to Emerson to Louisa May Alcott, you know, even to like great atheists like Virginia Woolf, um, certainly Martin Luther King. Um, uh, I mean, like some of them were even like child preachers. Um, so, so just a lot of my idols really spent a lot of their lives contemplating religion and spirituality. So I'm not sure the moment, but that was the mindset that got me, you know, thinking about it and looking into it. James Baldwin. I mean, you know, like some of the really like all of my favorite people have at least wrestled with it. Sounds like a very um, almost intellectual decision. Yeah, it really, it was, it was, um, I mean, I've always been very moved by literature, not surprising given what I do now. And so, so all of my favorite books are ripe with it. You know, Jane Eyre is very mystical. She, um, the first time that Rochester, the great love interest enters the scene, he thinks that she's a pixie and a fairy. So there's all of this great sort of 
you know, more mysticism to it. And then it's also a very Christian book. And then, you know, Little Women, transcendentalism is running through the entire thing. And so um, all of my all of my favorite novels even wrestled with it. So I, even though I would never have noticed that those were the things that all of my favorite books had in common, um, I love Pride and Prejudice, but I much prefer Jane Eyre. And I think that the difference is the spirituality. So it was an intellectual observation of, you know, years of emotional reactions to things. I love that. When I talk to people who are atheists, um, mainly I talk to them probably about the book uh, Religion for Atheists by mm -hmm. Alain de Botton. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them seem very confused <laughs> by by this notion of spirituality for people who are neither into God nor into yoga. Yes. So can you maybe elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, Alain de Botton is a great example of exactly what I am interested in because right he he writes a lot about Proust um, and meaning making from Proust and but um yeah so the way I see it is I so I I I am one of those people I'm an atheist and I'm like a very devout atheist um and I'm I don't do yoga I'm a runner um which is like the anti-yoga I feel like in terms of like um physical body practices But it's, um, I, I think it's just an, an admission that even if science keeps progressing for millennia, there will always be mysteries to the world. Um, and everybody has, it, so to me, spirituality is about trying to acknowledge that everybody has an inner life, um, and an inner life, not only that I can't imagine, but that. I could spend a whole life studying them and would never have more than scratched the surface, including my own inner life. And so embracing the mystery of that and of humanity and that there isn't an easy solution to things and that there are times that you have to throw up your hands um, and not just times where you have to throw up your hands. The thing that's most interesting to me is studying in order to discern the principles by which you want to live and then committing yourself to those principles. And then, I mean, my favorite quote from Jane Eyre, which I always misquote, so I should probably memorize, but is principles are not for the times in which they are easy to adhere to. They are for times such as these in which um, our whole body is rising up against them. So studying in order to discern your principles and then really through practice, having the strength and faith that living up to those principles, even in time of distress, is going to lead you to living the kind of life that you want to live. And I don't really know how to do that without contemplating mystery and without, con you know, without faith in, in principles, without faith in your formal self who discerned the principles when you were calm, without faith in humanity, you know, without taking real leaps. So I absolutely do not believe in divine intervention. I do not believe in um in an afterlife i you know but i do believe that humility and an understanding of mystery is you know is helpful is incredibly helpful if not essential to living a good you know moral life 
Right. Um, I have a follow-up question for you based on what you just said. Um, I, I love this idea because of obviously principles. It seems very obvious that principles are not just for when it works out well, right? But you also said the crucial part of your past self figured them out. So how do you negotiate, you know, evolving with your beliefs or with your experiences um, and obvious change, so to speak, and then reconcile them with your principles? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. Um, there... Um... I mean, my answer is a very Jewish answer, which is that there are laws and that the laws can change and the commentary on the laws is what we look to in order to change the laws. And, and if instead of laws, if you think of principles, right, I, I so um, I don't think principles can just be discerned through like a sense of what's right and wrong. I do think that st like real study has to be done in order to figure out what you believe in things. For example, I, I have worked a lot in reproductive rights and you talk to people who have a hundred percent discerned, not because of their religion, um, but because they have thought about it, um, that abortion is wrong in every case. And there are people who have discerned without any study that abortion is absolutely a right that women should have. And so, you know, you ask yourself, how is it possible to discern these things on your own if, like, there's no universal morality where we can come down on, on these things in any sort of intellectual way. So I think that it's our responsibility to study what different people have said about any big moral question and then make a decision. And then I think that when we're in a moment of crisis, that is not the moment to change our, our previous opinion after the crisis has passed, that moment of crisis can be an extra piece of data. So if I believe that, I'm trying to even think, if I believe that abortion is, you know, I'm a hundred percent pro, pro I'm a pro-choice person and I believe that abortion is right in every case and it should only be up to the woman. And then I have a conversation with a male friend of mine who feels as though he wasn't even a part of the conversation, whatever happened and it went against his morality. I can, in that moment of conversing with my friend, I think that it's my commitment to say, look, I've always believed that it's up to the woman and I still believe that. And then after that moment of crisis, use that new data point that you've collected in order to put, maybe to, you know, well, definitely to rethink your position and maybe to come down in the same place as you were before, but to consider this new piece of data. But the point of principles is, right, to get you through those moments of crisis when you don't have enough time to, to make a decision or to be able to trust that you'll make a good decision. And so I think we have to pick our principles and then I think we have to practice them, which is why I believe in engaging with texts um, in order to practice these morals because I think loving takes practice I think empathy takes practice I think listening takes practice and so whatever it is that you've decided to commit yourself to I think you have to practice in order to be ready for difficult moments and this all comes right like I am the grandchild of four holocaust survivors and the child of refugees so this all comes from a desire to be morally ready when somebody is in need so 
That was a very long answer to your question. I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't worry. Um, my listeners do have, you know, proper attention spans, so you don't have to worry about that at all. Um, so let's get into the actual topic, which is when, by the way, I, I, I see I have to like concentrate more than usual, because I think I feel I could just go with you all over the place. <laughs> and then at the end, it would be like, oops, it's your meeting. Um, so believe me, I, I, I would have a lot to say about that. But I kind of try to find a balance here so I don't just indulge myself. <laughs> so um, what is sacred reading then? So sacred reading is, I mean, something that most religious traditions have. And um, so in our podcast, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, um, my partner, my co-host and I um, use traditionally Jewish and Christian practices. Um, neither of us are are religious in any conventional way, and so, but we use uh, reading practices from our own faith traditions and apply them to Harry Potter in instead of to traditional sacred texts. And so, um, we use you know one sacred practice that's from a 13th century Carthusian monk. We use. Um, a, sac- a practice that goes back to the Middle Ages, um, one that St. Ignatius came up with, um, and then we use two Jewish practices um, that both are, you know, from are over a thousand-year-old reading practices just that um, rabbis and scholars have used for years in order to engage with the text. And the idea is that a text is like a person or like humanity that it only becomes interesting, you know, once you get below, sorry, that is my dog. Hello, doggy. Hi, no thanks. Um, she's very concerned for my safety all the time, so I just have to thank her for protecting me. But um, so by treating a text as sacred, the idea is that you're getting past the sort of first date layer of um of the text, you know, you can learn a bunch of facts about a person, but that doesn't really give you a sense of who they are. You have to get beyond, you know, oh, you're a psychologist. Why? What kind of psychology do you, you know, do you practice? It's the facts in and of themselves are not what make a person interesting. And we think that the literal meaning of a text is not what makes it interesting or useful. Yeah, I love that. And I think an important thing to add is also that um, with sacred reading of a novel it kind of means that you don't just say oh this is um just a figment of you know somebody's imagination but actually you treat it and that's what you write on your website I'm obviously just copying what you say (laughs) um you 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 treat it you know what if this were actually true and and completely the way it was described so I think that's just a little bit of context for the readers so I've um I thought I, I can imagine there are some people who find it a little bit hard to, um, you know, imagine what sacred reading could be, even though I love the date metaphor. It's great. And I've never heard about it. Um, so I prepared a little um, passage. Wonderful. And, and what I'll do is I'll, I'll read that little passage to Vanessa. And um, uh, I'll go with um, Hafruta, because that's my favorite practice. And Mine too. <laughs> And, yeah, we'll, we'll see where it takes us. All right. The Patronus is a kind of positive force, a projection of the very things that the Dementor feeds upon, 
hope, happiness, the desire to survive. But it cannot feel despair as real humans do, so the Dementors can hurt it. But I want to warn you, Harry, that the charm might be too advanced for you. Many qualified wizards have difficulty with you. And my question mm -hmm. is, what do you feel that the Dementors, as they are described here, and also what we know about them from later books, what is the real-life equivalent of them? Mm -hmm. And in Havruta, you have to kind of come up with your own answer, and then Vanessa will give me her answer, and as Vanessa always explains so eloquently, the truth lies somewhere in the middle between what we two discovered. So for me, uh, Dementors, they reminded me basically of what depression does with you. Mm -hmm. So it just kind of sucks out all the hope and happiness and you're just this empty husk, basically. Um, but the reason I'm asking is that there is, I just feel it could be something beyond that. And I feel there are many different ways, you know, for example, Dementors could also be like certain kind of people that are to be avoided or something like that. So what do you think, Vanessa? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I also think my my gut is also that Dementors are um, a depression coming in um, with, yeah, Um I also, I do think that they could also be somebody who comes into your life and sucks the energy out of you or any activity that you have to do that takes away energy from you and is just sort of a bad thing that you have to do every day um, and that doesn't give you energy or add anything to your life, but rather is detrimental. But the more interest, not the more interesting, the other interesting part of this to me is so if it is depression or if it is an abusive person or a person who, you know, it has a negative impact on your life, what is the Patronus in our own lives? So is a Patronus Zoloft? Is a Patronus, you know, good think, like happy thinking? Is a Patronus self-care and trying to extricate those negative people from your life what there's a lot of hope in the ability that Lupin is teaching Harry about his ability to cast a Patronus and the fact that Harry is going to be able to defend himself from all that the Dementor um, can do so what is the metaphor for that in our own lives and my so now in the traditional Havruta right practice I will also try to answer my own question Ooh which is really hard. What do I think the Patronus is? I think that in the case at, I guess I think that the Patronus is friends, oh, right? Oh, interesting. The, the friends who take care of you when you're in a depression and are waiting for you on the other side and understanding while you're going through it. The friends who help you escape the bad relationship or who point out to you, look, you know, every time you have to do this, this or that thing, I find that you're depressed for three days after. Is there a way for you to cut it out? That's my guess. What do you think the Patronus is? To me, it sounds like um, being able to tap into um, your resilience skills 
So uh-huh. in positive psychology, basically the idea is that, you know, very much like what you said, right? You, we, we don't, we are not just able to listen. We have to practices and love and all of these things. You need to cultivate them. So resilience is basically like a toolbox of things and relationships is a very important part of resilience. So I would agree with you on that, that that's a, a big factor. Um, but the Patronus for me would be like the different ways that we can, it would also include self-care, um, relationships. Yeah. And I also thought of strengths. So so you said if um, Dementors are something like, um, you know, these kind of activities that drain us, it reminded me of um, character strengths in psychology, where we just say, like, we try to include things which are um, within our strengths. And it reminded me of the strength sandwich. So if you know that you have to go to a really, I don't know, horrible meeting or just something that you just know or just drain the light out of you, that you do something that that really energizes you before and after. And that yeah. way you can kind of insulate yourself a little bit like the Patronus. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is that I am allowed to take myself for a massage every time I have to do something I don't like. Well, a massage is not necessarily your strength. <laughs> it's a self-care, oh, right? right? So it's strength self-care. is like... Um, with you, uh, I mean, one like big thing that I, as a listener, consider as your strength is honesty. Mm-hmm. Like, like, I love how how you're just like when I meet people the first time, I just don't like them, <laughs> and, and you I just don't. say these things, which, by the way, really help me be less nervous about today. It's like, look, she doesn't like people the first time she meets them. You have nothing to lose whatsoever. <laughs> so so yeah. I always like you, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so um that meaning like so so your honesty, it could be some way that you can kind of like celebrate that honesty before and after. Do you know what what, what I'm getting at or should I Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, oh, absolutely. Cool. That's really helpful. I love that. This is great. I'm learning self self care to, uh, tools while being interviewed. This is like uh, if you, I mean, that's, ever. I mean, if you ever want to know more about those, uh, I positive psychology nerd. So okay. <laughs> please hit me up anytime. I'd love any excuse to talk to you. So don't worry about that. Um, right. So do you have like you? You obviously mentioned the benefits of spirituality of getting to know some, but do you know like actual, you know, like let's say psychological benefits or something like that, or just benefits in your experience of sacred reading itself? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of sacred reading. I, um, I mean, a great book that I'm sure, you know, is TM Lorman's book that I'm now forgetting the title of where she talks about the po- the positive, um, when God talks back, She's talking about the the positive attributes of prayer. They've done brain scans on um, on people who pray regularly, and when they pray and when they visualize God, like they literally get it. You know, their dopamine. I mean, you would know this much better than I would, but their dopamine receptors spark or whatever, light up or whatever it is. So there are definitely. Um, benefits to that type of prayer. But what I don't believe in is that if you pray for something, somebody else is listening and is going to respond in some sort of action. But um, I think that, you know, Simone Weil, who was um, a French philosopher who um, lived in France for most of her life um, and 
um, died in World War II. She talked about um, paying attention at school as a form of spiritual practice. And the idea was that if you practice paying attention, then you're going to notice, you know, more things around you. The benefits of it are by becoming intimate with a text. Um, it can be there for you in times of real crisis. I think that in times of crisis, it's not time to do something new. You know, you need something comforting. And if you were, if you know a text really well, if you are well acquainted with a text, it's like a friend, right? You don't want to go to an acquaintance or a new friend when you're in a moment of crisis, and you don't want to turn to a new book. Or, you know, or a new piece of art in a time of crisis. And so by having something that you know well, I think that there's just a security in that. Yeah, from my own experience, it's just endless lessons that I can learn from something. And so the, one of the things that we talk about with sacred text is that you have to have faith that the more time you spend with a text, the more gifts it can give you. And it's certainly something that I carry with me going to your strengths when you have to do something unpleasant comment. It's something I think about when I have to go to something that I think is going to be unpleasant. Um, and as someone with social anxiety, a lot of things fall into that category for me. And I, you know, I just remind myself that if I have faith that the more time I spend like paying attention at that wedding, the more gifts it will give me. I think that, I just have a more positive experience in these spaces by having practiced faith with Jane Eyre and with Harry Potter. I can have faith that a wedding is capable of being pleasant if I treat it as a sacred and special moment. Yeah, the, um, there there is this practice that you and Casper do, um, Lectio Divina, and one of one of the ways of reading a text um, is that you kind of think about how this can inspire a course of action in your life and you you guys do that um not every time but you've done it for quite a few episodes so i was wondering do you recall a moment in the last few weeks or months where you reacted differently as a result of one of those action points that you had taken um, yes. So we um, were at a convention this past weekend where um, we I knew we were going to be interacting with fans. And I am so grateful to our fans. And I love them in the abstract. And then right before I meet them, I'm just like, I don't know what you want. For I'm like, basically worried I'm going to be a disappointment to them. I'm like, sorry, you're sorry. <laughs> well, this is precisely what I mean. I love it. Right? Like, you hear me when I'm edited and when I've given a lot of thought to something ahead of time. And during a, like, Q&A on a panel, like, I'm going to swear and I'm going to, like, say something dumb and, you know, whatever. So, but thinking about it the night before, we I was preparing for the panel and so I reread chapter one, book one of the Harry Potter series. And, you know, I was, like, Dumbledore is standing outside of, Privet drive and is like very anxious about the action that he has to do but knows that he has to you know he has to drop off Harry on the doorstep and just thinking about that and I was like okay like you just have to do certain things and so you might as well have a good attitude about them and it's amazing that like a total peace came over me as we walked up onto that panel you know it was this isn't about me this is in like a very 
in like a way that Dumbledore really called me to. Like this is about something bigger than me. We are just lucky enough to be the people who talk about Harry Potter in a way that is meaningful to others. And so keeping that in mind, it, there was just like peace and ease on the on the panel. And it was fun, you know, as long as I basically talked myself back into a chaplaincy mindset of like, even though I, the being on a podcast can be very egocentric when it's just Casper, Ariana and I in a small room together, but reminding myself that it wasn't about me. Um, so yeah, that was just a moment on Sunday <laughs> that Dumbledore inspired me. Your listeners are going to think I'm the weirdest. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I do... I, I, I do say pretty random things on my podcast. Okay. So, so I'm, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think there is a little bit of competition there. Um, yeah. Okay. We, we can't I, do a poll on it. Um, I don't yeah. have the tools for it, but, but I yeah. feel like so defensive right now. I want to be like, guys, I have legitimate bona fides. I've like been, you know, credentialed by real people. Like, <laughs> but anyway, I'm not uh, just a loon. I promise. <laughs> Oh man, I oh, <laughs> I, I yeah I I mean I I'm not I'm not sure if I should wish that we were in the same room, but because I don't know if that would make you more or less anxious, but 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 but, but I think yeah maybe it's hard to kind of get my happy vibes through. Skype, oh, no, no, but, no, no, I, no, but but like I'm I'm deeply a... grateful and um and for me. This is this is actually a very special conversation because um, here, you know, there is no such thing as like if you want to do anything that has to do with caring for the soul, you have to either become a rabbi or go to church or whatever. Like there's no way. And I've had this sense that if um, if I'm after not after positive psychology, but like I, I kind of have this sense that like in five or ten years, I would actually do what you did um, because th I feel a very deep need for, I think there's a deep need for spirituality and for looking at art and all these forget forgotten sources, you know, like, which were kind of, you know, victims of modernity. Um, so, so believe me, um, I, I really think that my, my listeners can appreciate you. Like, I don't know about, you know, like what people think on CNN, or, like, I don't know, but, <laughs> but like, I, I'm sure they can. And, and just to relax you a little bit on the, on the weirdness front, like, I just wanted to ask you, I, I, I think I mentioned it in the email, but do you think there's such a thing as sacred, basically anything, right? Because the reason I'm asking is that I experienced exactly the same thing you said, but after I had watched like How I Met Your Mother at Nozium. Oh. So so there were these moments when I was just like I just remembered like some episode and I'm like, well, Ted kept us cool because he realized how like all these events would lead up to something that was important. For example, and I also had it exactly like you said, like you're almost like your friends. So mm -hmm. I don't know, like I mean Dumbledore is one, you know, one way to get wisdom, but like I think of Barney sometimes. So like I'm not oh, sure. That's <laughs> That is absolutely true for me. I mean, like, Gilmore Girls is an absolute touchstone for me. And when I went through a breakup a couple of years ago, I went through and watched all the breakup episodes of Gilmore Girls and was like, look, they end up okay, right? Like, I think that 
I mean, something we say is that, you know, nearly anything that's duly complicated can be treated as sacred if you love it. Um, you know, love what you love and love it with rigor. It's not sacred. I mean, this is sort this is like our, our tagline. So it's embarrassing to quote, but we say, go for it. But it's sacred as an act, not a thing, right? If I were to come across a Bible and it was in another language and I didn't know what it was, I could use it as like firewood, right? I could use it as a door stopper and that Bible would not be sacred. But if, um, and in different contexts, different things, are, right? Like if I had a beautiful Rembrandt and then was freezing to death in the woods, I would use it as firewood, right? And it would have been sacred as a piece of art to me five hours before. And now it is sacred to me and keeping me warm and alive. So it is how we interact with the thing that makes it sacred. It is not the thing itself. So as long as, you know, as long as it's not profane, I think that it's entirely in how you treat it as, is in how you treat it that something is sacred or not. Is there anything, Vanessa, that you feel we haven't talked about that you would like to mention? No, I'm, uh, no. I would like to say that I think I, tr- I treat my relationship with my dog as sacred. I treat her as if she has something to teach me. Um, you know, she like stops and smells the air. Like, and it's just a beautiful thing. And she, even when the Trump presidency is, you know, ruining the world, is a big fan of a tummy rub and reminds me to enjoy life. So I, I really do think that we can be looking for lessons and inspiration all around us and our lives become richer when we do. And the other thing I want to say is thank you. This was so fun to talk to you. Really? Oh, glad, glad. At least, yeah, I, I, yeah. just for the listeners, I kind of stole her lunch break in. And she said, I'm not supposed to feel bad for Americans about that. But I'm, I'm, to me, well-being is important. And I think people should have breaks. So, so I was like, well, but I want to talk to her. So I'm just going to be selfish here. <laughs> Believe me, I take breaks. I promise. Okay, good, good. All right, I hope you enjoyed this, and I highly, highly recommend that you check out Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, the podcast, and the website, which you can find at harrypottersacredtext.com. All right, so I played Brainwash to Myrtle, and here's what she said. As far as I'm concerned, all this poverty-cock babble is about as useful as a three-legged bobcat trying to bury its poop on a frozen lake. Oh man, Myrtle, come on. I was hoping for something more positive, you know, to uh, to sell more books, you know. You wait, young lady. Well, I'll be a monkey's auntie if this fixes anybody. But I do say I appreciated the wildlife. In fact, I created the Brainwash's Guide to Wild Creatures and Imaginative Objectives. You see, if you're not as careful, you can miss all the references, focus on all your crazy shit and all. Uh, Myrtle, I'm sorry, but uh, I'm trying to keep the show clean. Oh, yes. Okay. I was saying the book has everything. Domestic animals, wild animals, and I believe there were some references to the Pope as well. Oh, that's very kind, Myrtle. Um, so, well, any other reasons why people should, um, buy it? 
Oh yes, plenty. I mean, like almost all the narrators in there. There's a lab scientist from California, a British documentary filmmaker, and I think I also heard that Sebastian Crab from Ariel the Mermaid talking something about body odor and a funky accent. I took the book to my bingo club. The place went all firecracker and frog's legs over it, I tell you that. One of the nurses had to step in. There was just too much excitement. First time bingo was interrupted and ended prematurely. In that way, I believe it was quite historical. So well done, sugar honey. Could you tell people where they could get it, Myrtle? You know, for those who want a little bit more excitement at their retirement home, for example? Well, sure, love. It's gum.co slash brainwash. Thanks for listening to the Positive Psychology Podcast. We're saying goodbye with Happy Yogurt.